This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. And if you think back on citizen protests over civil rights, going back to the days of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., but even more recently in places like Ferguson, Missouri, or Baltimore, Maryland, and events associated with the Black Lives Matter movement, you can recall leaders of many faiths being in the middle of it all trying to urge a peaceful tone to everything, but also often being the spokespeople for the demonstrations. Today, to learn how these movements are organized and how they hope to achieve more peace and equity in our communities, we'll be talking with a couple of faith leaders who've become guiding voices to national efforts to support local community organizing for racial equity, and also a professor and author who's studied this faith-based community organizing. First up, we welcome Reverend Michael Ray Matthews, who's Director of Clergy Organizing for the PICO National Network. PICO standing for People Improving Communities Through Organizing. In our conversation, Reverend Matthews started telling me about what he calls the theology of resistance that guides his work. It's a multi-faith theological model for articulating how faith informs our commitment to build power for change. So there's a fundamental question that lives at the heart of the theology of resistance, and it's inspired by the question that Howard Thurman asked um, in his book, Jesus and the Disinherited. And the question is, what does faith have to say to those whose backs are against the wall? What do we say to people who are being oppressed, who are being marginalized? Does faith tell them to simply pray and hope and trust, or does faith tell them to act? Does faith tell them to resist? And so we are exploring the ways in which our faith traditions hold within them examples and teachings about how we resist the logic and the impulse of empire, how we resist um, injustice in our communities. And so we ask that question and then we try to respond to that question about how faith informs us in three, through, through sort of three narratives. And that narrative, that the arc of that narrative includes encounter, disruption, reimagining, and action. Where in our sacred traditions are there already stories uh, that are about people uh, being disrupted by uncommon encounters uh, that cause them to reimagine who they are and understand who they are in different ways and take action in a different way that allowed for the transformation of themselves and their community. And where is one, briefly? Well, sure. So you could be talking about Esther, Um, Queen Esther, who was following all the rules that allowed for her to eventually become the queen. Um, But there there were still rules for her as a queen, that she couldn't speak to the king unless the king called for her. And then there was this decree that uh, was going to call for the annihilation of the entire Jewish population. And Esther, who was not out as a Jew, had to make a decision that she was going to come out (laughs) and that she was going to go into the king's chamber Um, even though it was against the rules, and that she was going to fight uh, for the survival of her people. She had this disruptive encounter with this new political reality um, in the kingdom, um, and she was being uh, disrupted by the call of her family, her cousin Mordecai, uh, to actually do something about it. And she had to reimagine the possibilities of her power he, he told her, he said, you know, perhaps you've come to this royal dignity, this royal position for just such a time as this. And so she had to rethink. She had been following, following all the rules of the harem to become the queen. And now she's going to have to bend the rules or break the rules in order to be able to move beyond the moment that she was in. 
I think that's one of my favorite stories. And there's all kinds of stories. Isaiah the prophet, Amos the prophet. There are stories of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. There are stories of Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman. Uh, there are so many different examples of, of, of ways in which um, the, the, our, our religious traditions have in their sacred text stories of people making new decisions that are transformative. And then do your groups look into the Bhagavad Gita and uh, the Quran and other religious texts? Yes, yes, absolutely. So we ask people to pay attention to all of the sacred texts. And some of those sacred texts are not even, um, you know, in a text form. Some of them are, are oral stories that people are passing down. Some of them are embedded in ritual um, and song. And so we, we're asking people to, to really uh, explore the depths of their own spiritual backgrounds. Now you mentioned training resources. Can you paint a picture of what that looks like? So we're training them in the model of faith-based community organizing, which really begins with people understanding themselves and the context in which, in which they're living. Um, and increasingly in the past five years or so, that has meant paying a lot of attention to the way that race has shaped um, our context and the narratives that shape our lives. And so we spend a lot of time uh, dealing with um, uh, getting in touch with people's personal stories, personal experiences and narratives, unpacking what is happening um, in local communities, teaching people how to build relationships uh, through one-to-one um, -one conversations, uh, teaching people to understand what it means to engage in deep research that helps them understand how and why uh, they've come to uh, live in communities that might be impacted by mass incarceration or, uh, you know, immigration policies that tear families apart. And then look at how uh, help them develop the strategies for building the kind of power that allows for them to hold those who have decision-making power uh, responsible and accountable for making the changes that will improve people's lives. And so we walk them through that entire process of engaging in one-to-ones and deep research and developing a strategy for action and taking that action together. So uh, the first time when a lot of people see a community's organizing efforts manifest is when it gets to a critical point where there is a shooting in the community or there is some sort of an event and then there's a demonstration and then it's on television. I want to talk about those moments, but what I hear you saying is, is that there's a lot of training that's focused on the unseen steps that are happening up to a crisis point like that. Absolutely. I mean, there, there is a need for us to be constantly building the relational power um, of, our com of our communities, um, the, the civic understanding in our communities, so that when these moments arise, we are ready uh, to respond to it. And we have the networks of relationships. We have the ways of trying to understand and analyze what's happening in our community. We have the connections with people who um, have decision-making power to then be able to take some kind of action together. Reverend Matthews, jumping off the PICO story for a minute, tell me a story or two from your own activist history that had a profound impact on your philosophies and your approach and your interest in pursuing this work? Well, I mean, I've been involved in organizing 20 years now with PICO. I started as a local pastor who was involved in this work in Oakland and then later in San Jose, California, before I joined the national staff. And those experiences are full of a lot of stories about how I had to rethink a lot of things about who I am uh, what I value, what I believe, and what commitments um, I've made, um, and, and, and why I make those commitments, whether it's about 
um, really understanding the pain of immigrant communities um, or understanding the dignity of people who live with mental illness um, or coming to terms with the broken relationship that exists between uh, young black millennials and the historic black church, which is, which is my tradition. Um, I guess maybe one clear example of that would be from, two, would be from uh, the fall of uh, 2014 um, when Pico was in Ferguson for about four and a half months um, working with clergy and young people on the ground. And particularly uh, the uh, series of actions that took place in mid-October uh, 2014 I marked those as another baptism for me um, into what I call a reimagined solidarity uh, with black clergy and young black millennials who have been estranged from these traditional communities. A positive experience, though? Oh, very, very much so, but very painful because Ferguson, I think, highlighted for us how race and class and gender oppression and the politics of respectability have contributed to a divide between the religious community and young people. And so clergy planned a major um, march from a local church to the Ferguson Police Department uh, with a plan to hold a vigil in front of the police department for four and a half hours to mark the four and a half hours that Michael Brown's body lay in the street um, in Ferguson. And, there, and the call was to repentance and renewal on part of the law enforcement community and their relationship with, with young people there. And we realized the night before the march that we could not, with integrity, make this demand of the law enforcement community if we weren't also making this demand of ourselves. That in many ways, among the many institutions that are supposed to improve um, and value people's lives um, is the church, is the religious community. And so if we're going to ask the law enforcement institutions to do that, we have to ask the religious institutions to do the same. And so as we stood there um, in front of the police department, it began to rain. And I mean, it poured down rain so hard that, you know, it was coming through our umbrellas and we started singing Wade in the Water. Um, and, you know, the Baptist preacher in me said, this is a second baptism. This is a second baptism into a movement for justice and healing. And there's a new way, not that just we have to be in the world, but that I have to be in the world as a leader um, in the religious community. Our guest is Reverend Michael Ray Matthews of the PICO National Network, supporting faith-based community organizing efforts. When you look back on Ferguson a few years down the road now, how do you evaluate the overall effort of community organizing to work for change and to affect change in Ferguson? Well, I really feel that, you know, Ferguson was a watershed experience for us and PICO, but I think for the whole movement. Um, I think it opened uh, the doors for a lot of conversations um, about the tactics that we use in organizing. Uh, protests uh, have not necessarily been one of the primary tools in faith-based community organizing. Um, and now people are paying attention to the sort of the sacred moments that, that happen when people are outside together in public expressing their values. I think that it highlighted the role of race um, in our work. Um, because you couldn't talk about Ferguson without talking about race. You couldn't talk about Ferguson without talking about gender. Um, when you talk, you're talking about Ferguson and Black Lives Matter, you're talking about a movement and a moment that was born in the hearts and vision of, of women, of black women, of black queer women. And so there are ways in which uh, we have had to renegotiate um, our understanding of, of, of who leads this work and um, whose analysis informs uh, this 
this work. And so I think it's, I think it's had a, a major impact um, on organizing uh, writ large, um, on PICO organizing um, in particular. Reverend Matthews, talk a little bit about the role of public protest and social justice work, though. It certainly seems to make a lot of people uh, uneasy to watch it unfold from afar. It's a much different experience to be in the middle of it, as you have been sometimes. But talk about the pros and cons of what you've learned from your participation in all this and your study of it that's important for us all to take in. Yeah. I would say that um, public protests can be uneasy because it's outside of the historic norm of how we've organized, as I mentioned before. I think there are also concerns about like the safety of public protest. Um, and I think also there's concern about the uh, respectability and order. There's a discomfort with public expressions of, of anger. Um, but we, we teach that anger is really about grief. Uh, the root word of the word for anger is Old Norse for grief. Um, and that it's important, it's important that we restore practices of, of public grieving um, in our society, in our communities. Um, I think that's the beginning of reimagining um, is to be able to grieve and to be able to articulate um, what what has been lost or what has been violated, um, you know, in, in our community. So we I think we learned in Ferguson that public protest is a is a disruptive um, encounter that creates that space for reimagining who we are and who we want to be together. I value public protest today because I think it's where the wall between the sacred and the secular collapses. It's where we begin to see, see the sacredness of, of one another um, in ways that we couldn't see before. Well, I guess one of the most challenging things is that if there is an instantaneous need or a protest emerges on its own, you can have your people involved mm -hmm. and you also have people who are sparked by emotion who have never been to a community meeting and these two groups are trying to integrate uh, in a public protest. One had no training about the mission or how to measure the protest and that sort of thing versus those that have. That in itself is an instantaneous piece of conflict resolution that has to happen like within the demonstration. Yes, and I think that Ferguson is an example of that because I think what happened at the beginning of the Ferguson experience was you had a set of clergy that wanted to respond and you had a set of young people that wanted to respond and the clergy had an idea of how to respond that was rooted in a, you know, many years of practice and um, many years of like, this is how clergy show up um, you know, when these kinds of things happen and this is, this is how things will run. And the young people there were saying that approach is not sufficient for the expression of our grief. Um, and so a, a, the, one of the main reasons we were invited into the Ferguson uh, space um, during the uprising was that there was a need to try to build some uh, lines of connection uh, between between these two groups. So there was clergy who wanted to um, work with young people who asked us to come into Ferguson. And at the end of the day, um, the success of Ferguson really depended on the clergy being able uh, to yield to the leadership um, and to the grief um, and perspectives of young people, not the other way around. Well, at this particular time, too, as we pass through the 50th anniversary of the landmark civil rights public protest marches and Dr. King's work, I'm wondering if there's some sort of echo that reflects both mm -hmm. that noble tradition and yet still there's a challenging circumstance that continues to be very real for us to be facing. 
I well, I, I think so. I, the, the way the way I hear the question, the way I, the, what what came to mind as you as you were articulating it is is you know the the images of you know generations before us who who fought and struggled um, in many different many different settings in many different ways uh, for things that you know my generation. I was born in 1968. My generation were we were taught that this was all fought so that we could have a different kind of life. And so here I am, you know, 48 years old looking at my 19-year-old son and realizing that, you know, the life that my dad thought I would, I would have, um, in some ways has been fulfilled, but in other ways has not, especially as it relates to the sort of the pervasiveness and persistence um, of, of, the, of the lie of a hierarchy of human value. Race still shapes our lives in so many ways, and I have to worry about my, my young black son out in, out in the streets. And so there's a way, there's a way in which um, the, the movements of before um, inspire, inspire, but they also, it also is distressing to realize that um, this is a struggle that is, that is an ongoing one and one that will require people of faith and moral courage to stay committed to in the, for the long run. Well, let me close with this, Reverend Matthews. What's the thing that you'd like to say to those listening? Most listening are probably not engaged in political organizing, honestly. So I would say that it's really important uh, for folks who are not familiar with organizing um, to Take some steps, whether they be small or, or large, to get connected uh, to the people who are who, whose stories are informing this work. I find that our folks get more involved when they are hearing uh, the stories and the cries um, of people who live closest to the pain. I think often our fear of getting involved is related to the fact that we don't have the relationships that give us um, the kind of context for understanding what we might be bearing witness to on the news, um, in, in the media. And when people hear the stories of, of indigenous leaders who are trying to protect the environment, when they hear the stories of, you know, mixed immigration status families who are trying to stay together, when they hear the stories of women and men who are trying to reenter society after incarceration, um, and are finding that there's obstacle after obstacle um, in their way. Their hearts break open um, to understanding why it is important um, and what's at stake, not just for those individuals, but for all of us as a community. That at the end of the day, you realize that these are, these are my people, this is my sister, this is my brother, and that the welfare of my life and my family depends on the welfare um, of, of, these, of these sisters and brothers around me. And I guess be ready for a little internal resistance because it's not necessarily an easy space to occupy. No, and this is why I'm saying like take, take that first you know, baby step into these relationships because there will be resistance and that resistance will come you know, from, from multiple corners. I mean, there's, 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 the own, there's, there's the resistance you have within your own spirit um, about being in, being in public relationships with, uh, with folks. Uh, there's the resistance that others around you might have, like, what does it mean for you to be involved? And my, my, you know, my family for a long time was trying to make sense of uh, what I do as a minister and how do I even describe what I do as a part of, of being a minister. They understand, you know, the historic examples of a minister wearing a robe and a collar. And when I was doing that, they, they knew what box to put me in. Um, and now, you know, I'm in the streets, <laughs> I'm at protests. And they're not quite sure what, you know, what I'm doing. So I, was, I say definitely to, to, to just take a first step 
dig into the relationships and um, your imagination will open up from there. Reverend Michael Ray Matthews is Director of Clergy Organizing for the PICO National Network, which offers support for faith-based community organizations working for social change. Our complete conversation with him you can find at peacetalksradio.com. Next up, a former PICO Network colleague of Reverend Matthews, when our program continues right after this break. listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, online at peacetalksradio.com. I'm Paul Ingalls, and today our topic is faith-based community organizations working for social change. And our next guest is Reverend Alvin Herring, Director of Racial Equity and Community Engagement for the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. Welcome, Dr. Herring, to Peace Talks Radio. Well, thanks for having me, Paul. Looking forward to it. Now, Reverend Herring, you were born a year after me, 1957, and in Louisville, Kentucky? Yes, born in Louisville, Kentucky, 1957. So tell us the story that I've heard you tell before of the seven-year-old Alvin Herring on a family trip from Louisville to Clayton, Alabama, where your dad was from. And on this trip, you saw an even more explicit display of the Jim Crow South than maybe even in your own hometown. Your mom went to a whites-only laundromat with you kids on that trip, and a white woman confronted her. What then? Yeah, that was uh, that. That was a, a memorable trip. Um, I still remember uh, that day like it was yesterday. My father uh, was uh, a sharecropper in uh, Clayton, Alabama. His father was a sharecropper, and uh, his father uh, was born to parents who began their life enslaved. Um, my father, you know, his lifelong dream was to leave the Deep South and hope he had hoped to never return. He missed his family and he had, at that point had three small children and um, desired to travel back home with, uh, with his family and my mother, my brother and sister to visit. I had a chance to meet relatives that I'd never met before and it was really a wonderful experience. Midway through the um, two-week-long trip, my mother expressed a need to wash her children's clothes. And um, in those days, very few families in that part of the South had indoor plumbing, and my uncle certainly didn't. And uh, clothes were washed on a scrub board and wrung out an old machine that was spring-loaded and was really dangerous to use. And my mother, not, not accustomed to that, you know, demanded, uh, asked my father to take her into town to the laundromat. I remember her. Uh, for the first time, um, seeing laundromats that carried signs that were not familiar to me. Um, one sign said, colored, 
I was really confused by that. I didn't know exactly what that meant, and I had some, you know, some some imagination about what I might find inside of that laundromat. The other said whites only, and I was clear about what that meant. And my mother, um, having taken a short peek inside the colored only laundromat, decided that she wasn't going to wash her children's clothes uh, in a laundromat in the condition that it was in, and so she marched us up the street to the whites-only laundromat and proceeded to put our clothes in the machine. And the attendant there, young white woman, um, confronted her angrily. Uh, and my mother, uh, I had always known her to be a woman of considerable strength and fortitude, but very dignified and respectful of people generally, particularly those who were respectful of her. Um, but in this instance, this young woman was... Um, so aggressive in her denunciation of her, of us, and demanding that we leave that laundromat under threat that she would call the police, that for the first time I remember seeing my mother afraid. I recall that our clothes were taken out of the wash machine and thrown out into the streets. Uh, I do know that um, there was a scene on the sidewalk outside of the laundromat. A crowd gathered, and, and they were confronting my mother and very angry tones and as a child I was really terrifying and I learned something that day I learned for probably the first time that um, not only was I and my family supposed to kind of be in certain places and not be in other places but that the consequence of being in the wrong place could be harrowing um, and even potentially dangerous I also learned the extent to which uh, at least in that instance, whites were prepared to oppose not just my presence, but it seemed to oppose um, me and literally my, my existence. Eventually, the sheriff was called, and my father was called, and he picked us up and brought us home. And you know, Paul, for the next, um, literally the next 50 or 60 years, my mother very rarely, if ever, spoke about that. We would ask her about it, and she wouldn't have a lot to share about it. But on her 75th birthday, she, she did sit us down and she said, I'm going to tell you all this one time. This is why I took you into this laundromat. She said, um, I saw Rosa Parks and what she did. I watched with appreciation what Dr. King did, even the children, what they did in crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge. I saw the abuse that they took for the principles that mattered to them and she said mattered to her. And she said, she asked herself that day, who am I? I'm a poor black woman without a high school education from a rural uh, farm town in Kentucky. What could I ever do to make a difference? And she decided that on that day she would do that one thing. And I don't know if she anticipated it at the moment, but the difference she made uh, was really in the life of my brother and sister and, and, and myself. Certainly a tremendous difference in my life. Must have been an extraordinary day when she sat you down to, to tell you the story one time and, and to, to hear that context. Yeah, no, it really was. I mean, we, uh, we had asked her over the years. And you know how it is when you're a child. Um, if something happens to you and it isn't consistently verified by adults, you begin to wonder if it really happened to you. And, um, but among my brother and sister and I, we, we talked about it often. And again, we tried to get her to, to speak about it with detail, but you know, she said, she said that one of the reasons why she didn't have a lot to share about it was that um, it, it, you know, it wasn't much. 
And of course, we 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 argued with her, and, and we'll argue with it to this day that it was quite a lot. She said, you know, others others did so much more than that, um, and all she did was on that day uh, challenge the segregated laundromat uh, in that small mm-hmm. Alabama town. But I I think um, since that time, I think she's grown to understand that it was quite a an amazing and courageous and important act. Well, and here you and I have traveled the same number of years roughly, and uh, we've seen a lot of changes. So let's fast forward a little bit to uh, talks that you give these days to help move us from where we are now. You give a talk called Getting Beyond Bias Often, in which you say that talking about racism and white supremacy may not be the best way to get people to respond to the call for social change and racial equity that continues but the talking about inherent bias is more productive you say tell me a little more about that well yeah i think one of the one of the ways in which you know uh, particularly through the organizing work at pico one of the ways in which we were really um, able to get groups to really both talk about racism and also organize their voice and their civic leadership and ultimately their power was by helping them understand that um, the foundational building blocks of racist systems begin in places where where biases are shaped and formed. And uh, those biases become uh, kind of locked in at a subconscious level or a level where we aren't always able to access them intentionally and that those biases are performative. In other words, we act them out. Certainly we act them out explicitly with intention, but a lot of times we're acting them out implicitly without intention, but certainly um, with impact. We found that that's a much more uh, effective way to bring people into the kind of conversation and into the kind of orbit, if you will, uh, in which more intentional action and deeper conversation can happen. Well, I watched one of your talks, obviously in front of a room full of people at a conference, and you invited them to ask themselves, you know, where did you grow up? Did the people in your neighborhood look like you? Did the people in your school mostly look like you? And you were reporting just about every hand went up. Then when you said, uh, what about the grocery store you most often go to? Do the people mostly look like you? These are sort of conscious choices that uh, maybe are feeding into an unconscious space, but we don't think about them that much. That one caught my attention, the grocery store one. Yeah. Well, maybe another way of approaching it is that these are unconscious biases that feed into and are the building blocks of conscious choices. And I think that's really what we're trying to isolate here, that you can form an association, for example, biases are are really often formed through association, either something you actually witness, but even more importantly, something you've been told or heard or been taught. And you you link two things together. These people are dangerous. These people um, are irresponsible. These people are lazy. These people will cheat you. You know, certainly very few people would say out loud and consciously, I believe this entirely. But you can still hold that bias and make choices in your life. And upon reflection, you can see that those choices are really in part or in total inspired by those biases. And that's why we end up living in segregated neighborhoods. Uh, This country, many of its largest cities, are as segregated or more segregated than this country was in the 1950s. 
Public schools in, across the country have never lived up to Brown. We have never desegregated our schools. Our children still don't have an equal shot of sitting next to each other in a classroom and sharing that experience together. And certainly, you know, if you look at the laws on, on the books and the statutes and the constitutional protections and the vigorous enforcement, all of that is there. If you ask the average American, what's your feeling about segregation and education and housing? For the most part, poll after poll shows that our conscious and explicit orientation is those things are bad. And yet, we make choices to live in neighborhoods where people look just like us, shop in grocery stores, go to parks, worship, you name it. Our lives are lived to a large extent in this country, parallel to one another with very few areas of intersection. And so a lot of the, the organizing work, a lot of the, and for that matter, a lot of the work of faith and, and even a lot of the work of this foundation is to move us into a conscious dialogue where there can be clarity, accountability, we can heal, and we can really reach for something better with real intention. You invite people in these talks to challenge that uh, old saying that I have lots of fill-in-the-blank friends, black friends, Hispanic friends, Native mm -hmm. American friends. Say more mm -hmm. about that challenge. Yeah, I think one of the ways in which we let ourselves off the hook when we are made to confront our biases is that, well, we have friends. You know, we, we as you said, we have black friends, we have Jewish friends, we have Muslim friends, we have white friends, we have Latino friends, we have Asian friends. As though that then excuses us from ever holding either consciously or unconsciously, attitudes, biases, prejudices, and perceptions that ultimately support and become the fuel of the systems that really deprive of us all of equal access and equitable opportunity and equitable treatment. And that's never sufficient. Uh, it's never sufficient. One friend or five friends certainly don't represent a whole group and just because you have some associations, which is great, doesn't mean you've done the other work of walking inside the experience of your friends, really seeing them and seeing what they're up against, understanding what that means for you. It's one thing to say, I have black friends. It's another thing to say, I understand through my close association better what, it, what, what that experience is like. But then there's another thing to say that I really have walked inside of that space intentionally with my friend and I've come out on the other side as an ally, as a person committed and willing to work not just for, for what's good for me and my family, but what's good for them and their family. And even folks who say, I have good friends, when you ask them, so those friends visit with you? Uh, you know their children's names? Uh, you shared anniversaries, birthdays, holidays with them? You've sat with their sick loved ones and they've sat with yours? Then that I have a friend thing begins to break down. What are some of the personal responsibility steps that any of us can take to move beyond that point, uh, beyond the overall culture of exclusion and othering? So the first thing people can do is to really seek out and live inside completely, thoroughly, authentically, live inside those relationships with people whose identity and culture and background is different than their own, to really see them and then really move inside that experience such that you become an ally and you carry a commitment to their 
uh, liberation, if you will, or their health and wholeness and healing similar to the one that you carry for yourself and for your family. I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing is, and this is really where it gets hard for people, although the first step is hard too, and that is that, you know, there's a narrative in this country that supports systematic racism and systematic othering. And you've got to challenge that narrative. And the, the most effective way to challenge that narrative is people need to begin to tell their story, speak in their authentic voice, share their identity, make it known that, they've, that they have a level of comfort about who they are and a level of curiosity about the other, but to really gather with one another. This is now beyond the one-to-one, but gather with one another in church, in synagogue, in mosque, in the streets, at school meetings and PTA meetings. Get in there with each other. And have the kind of conversation, and if you can't give all the most constructive answers, at least have the courage to ask the important questions. The third thing is that people are going to have to speak up. They're going to have to, you know, understand that they are powerful, even much more powerful when they work together, and then even more powerful still when they work together across race lines, across gender lines, across other lines of identity. And that organizing work, that coming into power, that's really, really, really hard. But we won't get to where we need to get to if we're not able to do that work as well. You know, one of the realities here is that um, all the work of racial healing, work of racial justice and racial equity, all of the work requires real courage. Uh, It requires risk. And uh, positive rewards are not guaranteed. I'm reminded often of the sacrifice of Viola Luzo. Uh, She was a young white woman, suburban uh, Detroit housewife, who watched with horror on the evening news, like many of us did, and I was a child, and I think you were as well, Um, the first crossing of the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And when she saw that and she saw how those children and young people were brutalized, she left her home and the safety of her family, traveled by car overnight, and began working every day towards the next crossing of the Edmund Pettus Bridge and going out in the field with civil rights workers and going into church halls and beauty shops and street corners and really trying to create uh, an organizing effort, really based on her faith um, that would challenge, um, you know, segregation at that time. And unfortunately, um, after that second crossing, she lost, she lost her life. Uh, she, was, she was murdered um, by members of the Ku Klux Klan. And um, she had some sense that day that something bad was going to happen. She didn't have a sense it was going to happen to her. But even with the sense of foreboding, She did what she was determined to do anyhow. And certainly, I don't think uh, most of us won't be called to make that sacrifice. Um, But the courage that it requires, much like what you uh, exhibited on that day, is the same. Will I watch? Will I be an observer to the systematic uh, humiliation and of others, the separation, the degradation, the alienation, or will I in my own life summon my own power 
and do what I believe I've been asked to do by whatever higher power that I uh, pray to. And um, I think that uh, it doesn't have to be the sacrifice that Viola Luzo made. You, you tell uh, Viola Luzo's story. You, you've also told Thomas Garrett's story, yes. another white person who stood out. Uh, and it, it seems like you've um, made the statement that in some ways it feels important to add these stories to the more commonly told stories about people of color working for their their own rights. For example, you would tell the story of John Lewis getting bashed on the head uh, on the Selma Bridge, but it's important to you, it seems like, to tell Miss um, Liuzzo's story hand-in-hand hand with that, to make progress of a different kind. Well, I mean, because I think it's what's real. I mean, when I said earlier that we need to, you know, take authority over the narrative, um, that's what's real. There were Viola, Viola Luzos all over the South. The Freedom Riders were, in very large part, uh, young whites from the Northeast and from out West. The abolitionist movement was uh, significantly uh, joined and, and in places led uh, by whites. That's the real narrative. That's the true story. Uh, growing up in Kentucky, I would travel to southern Indiana just across the Ohio River into churches that had false walls, churches that served as stations on the Underground Railroad. Those churches were churches that were white churches led by white clergy. Uh, that's real. That's a real part of the narrative. But the prevailing narrative, the dominant narrative, would suggest something else. And that is that the condition of apartheid, really, the separation, the strict separation of blacks and whites and others, has always been the case, has always been there for people's protection, will always be there. You know, in the 1780s, states were trying to codify into law uh, slavery. And in South Carolina, the slave uh, code, if you will, said that slavery was hereditary and perpetual. I mean, really, you know, it's hard, I think, today to to really wrap our heads around that. Hereditary and perpetual. And yet, that institution does not stand today. Now, we still have struggle, and we still have much work to do. But we're, in, we're, but we, we're not enslaved, uh, none of us, um, as we were 200 years ago, and that is because, certainly because of the courage and the determination of African Americans, people of African heritage, but also because of the courage, determination, sacrifice, and commitment of whites. And I think we need to tell those stories, and not only the stories of the past, but the stories of the present. If you look across the country now, many of the most strident voices decrying things like police violence and um, uh, the the detention of uh, thousands of immigrants uh, mandated by law every night across this country. There are many leading and powerful white voices who have found a way to be supportive of their brothers and sisters of color, but also do the work as they understand it, to stand as ally and friend and supporter and co-laborer. Reverend Alvin Hearing of the Kellogg Foundation's Department of Racial Equity and Community Engagement is on the line with us. Uh, you have said that Black Lives Matter is perhaps one of the most important social justice movements in this country's history, and that even historic civil rights movements were, in their own way, 
saying Black Lives Matter without catching on to that phrase. Mm -hmm. And then in recent years, of course, there's this public conversation. Uh, Even some people who feel that they are in solidarity with African Americans, if they're honest, might admit to taking a pause when they hear someone on TV say, hey, all lives matter. Mm -hmm. Their brain might say, well, of course I agree with that. But what do you make of all this? You said that to you it's more than semantics. Could you talk about it a bit? Well, yeah, I do think it's more than semantics. Young people insisting that black lives matters really matters to all of us. Because what that cry is about is just that. It is a cry. It is most usefully understood as a question. And so can you imagine putting a question mark at the end of it? My life matters, right? I'm black, but I still matter, right? And when you encounter it that way, you understand that that kind of question can only come from pain. And I defy anyone to say that any of us are born unable to understand and to feel the other's pain. I think that's what makes us human. And what's been remarkable around the country is that people from all walks and backgrounds are saying, yes, it does matter. But they're saying one other thing that I really want, I really am encouraging us to listen to. They're saying it matters because of who you are, but it matters because I'm in pain too. You know, this last recession, 2008, more white working men lost their jobs than any time in American history other than the Great Depression. More white families were unable to send their children to college without being saddled with debt than any other time in American history. More whites fell below the, middle, the, the, the economic line that demarks working class from middle class than any other time in American history. There's a lot of pain in this country. And, um, and I think that's what Black Lives Matter is really calling us all to listen to. Yeah, I was just thinking if you have to add the word all in there somewhere, that uh, that's the place you would put it. Black lives matter to all. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. And, you know, it, it's, uh, I think the, the, the narrative says that, they're, that you know, the majority of people can't really understand that and aren't really reaching for that understanding. And the reality is that's just not true. Reverend Alvin Herring is director of Racial Equity and Community Engagement for the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. Look for our complete chat with him and some videos of him on our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. In a moment, a sociology professor and author who's studied and written about faith-based community organizing. When our program continues, Peace Talks Radio rolls on in a moment.
is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Thanks for listening. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Today we're focusing on faith-based community organizations working for racial equity and social change. And our final guest is Dr. Richard Wood, Ph.D. sociology professor at the University of New Mexico, who some years ago with Brad Fulton of Indiana University studied the work of the PICO Network and other community organizing and wrote the book called A Shared Future, Faith-Based Community Organizing for Racial Equity and Ethical Democracy. When we talked with Dr. Wood in 2016, he just joined PICO's advisory board. I asked him about the practical value of having faith leaders engaged in protecting and legitimizing social protest and community activist work. There is some real evidence that by being based in churches that are seen as legitimate and credible institutions in American society still, that that does help protect demonstrators, that it does help people feel like it's okay to come together and try to change American society because they're doing it out of a shared faith commitment or spiritual commitment. Um, I think that that does matter. Because you've seen it like in Ferguson and some of the hot flashpoints where it doesn't take long before someone, a man of the cloth, woman of the cloth, uh, steps up in front of the cameras and says, you know, we're calling on all these people to do this peacefully or represent the effort in some sort of balanced way that makes a case for the inequality but also makes a case for peaceful demonstration. You know, I think that clearly matters. Just, you know, the image of a person of the clergy in any tradition in front of a demonstration has to give uh, police or others a bit of a pause before they repress those kinds of demonstrations. There's a picture like that on your cover. Yeah, there is indeed. That's out of (laughs) Ferguson, Missouri, right after uh, Michael Brown was killed there. Mm -hmm. I do think also faith makes a very different kind of difference, too. One thing I write about is the way that Not all kinds of religion, but some forms of religion in any tradition help people come together and respect lines of difference. Now, that's a hard thing to hear because so much of American religion these days is deeply intolerant and divides the world into us and them. But in all the great faith traditions, there's forms of those traditions that say the big division isn't between you and I. It's a dividing line that goes through each of us between those parts of us that are really committed to the best in the world, to building a better world that we share, to being our best selves, and part of us that's tempted to just serve our own needs. And that if we can lean on those forms of religion that really draw us together and help us encounter one another, that those shared spiritual traditions actually can help us work for peace, work for a better world. What's the headline from your research, do you think? What do you find that stands out as an important takeaway from the work that you studied and the interviews that you did? I'd summarize it this way, that taking on race in America is hard work. There's nothing easy about it. It doesn't happen from one day to the other just by declaring myself not a racist. But that some organizations are doing it, doing it successfully, struggling to work on questions of race well, but doing that across race lines in ways that actually bring people together, working for justice, working for equality in American life, and that that's being done with really important leadership from African-American clergy and organizers, really important leadership from Latinos, uh, Native Americans, Asian Pacific Islanders, but really importantly, white folks getting on board and saying, this is our struggle. 
that we need leadership from those groups that have been marginalized and oppressed under racism. But ultimately, it's our moral political burden. They would say it's our spiritual burden to take on racism in America because it's a, it's a white construct. It's a white invention. White folks got to be at the center of helping dismantle the deep, deep structures of implicit bias. That was true in the 60s too, but is it uh, more important now or just as important as it was then? I think it's just as important, but it's different in that racism just isn't as sort of blatant and as obvious as it was in the 50s and 60s, at least in a lot of settings in American life. It's subtle, but in that subtlety, is in some ways, it's more demonic because it's so easy for white Americans to say, we've dealt with race. We're past that. We're in this post-racial America. My God, we just had a black president. And to think that somehow that means we're exempt from having to do the hard work of continuing to undo racism in America, which spent 400 years being constructed, it hasn't been undone in the last two decades. And we've got hard work to do still. Mm. And so where do millennials fall in this? Because a lot of people say, well, you know, the millennial generation is much more multicultural, much more relaxed around race. Uh, are they stepping up and into this uh, action? You know, I, I'm very encouraged by young people today. I do think they're less self-conscious around racial diversity than we were. Many of us still are. But I don't think that means that millennials are immune from the kinds of things that we're talking about here. You know, young white millennials are still the heirs to a kind of white privilege that if they're not conscious of, they'll just take advantage of unconsciously. And... I think some of the really exciting work is young white millennials specifically talking about undoing white uh, supremacy, undoing white privilege. Now, yeah, sometimes I can get a little too precious and a little too self-conscious. But I think by and large, it's a very healthy development where young people are naming racism for what it is and saying, I, whatever my race, am going to try to step outside that and live life a little differently. I think it's really important to say then the kind of work we're talking about here, it's not people getting together to talk about race across lines of racial difference. There's a lot of models of um, conversation and dialogue on race. And that's not what this model's doing, right? Instead, this is getting people together across lines of racial difference to work on changing the world together. It's not just about dialogue and being nice to each other and trying to understand each other's point of view. These are folks getting together and doing the hard work, getting their hands dirty together of trying to change inequality, trying to change racial injustice in America. There's something very real about that that sometimes dialogue doesn't quite mm -hmm. get to. It means people are struggling to work together. They're disagreeing with each other sometimes. They're fighting with each other sometimes to figure out the best way to undo inequality and racism in America. Somehow I think that helps them come together as whole people rather than these sort of plastic constructs that have to just be, speak nicely to each other across the divide. And in some ways, it's sort of the dominant American religion these days is we're all just supposed to be nice to each other. My read is that all the great spiritual traditions of human life just don't teach that. What they teach is we have to be faithful to the truth. We have to love one another. But sometimes love involves confronting the, the other person with their stuff. And um, if we can learn that side of our spiritual tradition, maybe we'll all be better at peacemaking too. It's about shared work, and in that shared work, deep dialogue, 
but it's not just about talking to each other. What does that hard work look like? So when these groups take action together, it, it looks different at different times. Sometimes it's demonstrations on the street. Sometimes it's folks going into a conflict like in Ferguson or any of the tragic and outrageous incidents of uh, violence since then. And having to react quickly and in having a unified react, yeah, way. And people going in from one day to the next just to be a presence in the middle of some of those conflicts. Other times it's a much more planned, laid-out strategy getting a 1,000 people into a room with the three mayor candidates in a given city and getting them to commit to doing something about living wages in that city or do something about immigrant rights in that city or do something about mass incarceration and policing in, in the city. And sometimes so it's a much more formal political action that way. Sometimes it's registering, registering people to vote. So the action part of it can take a lot of different forms. Leading up to that... It's these hard conversations between people who have different priorities. Is our organization for the next six months going to work against mass incarceration in America? Or are we going to work on immigrant rights? Or are we going to work on a living wage campaign, right? And those are hard tactical decisions that these groups have to make all the time. And they have to be negotiated out. And one of the ways that the shared faith commitments of these folks often help them is that there's some kind of trust in these groups that has been built through shared spiritual practices of one kind or another that I think help them negotiate out those hard political questions on the basis of some shared trust rather than some organizations have to have to just fight those uh, conflicts out and that's tough. Ultimately, there often is some coordination by statewide or national level uh, bodies within PICO um, suggesting that, well, given the current moment in American politics, we think right now we have the opportunity to address this successfully. And we'd like to get everybody's endorsement with that on an understanding that six months from now we'll work on that other thing. Um, those are hard. Those are hard conversations sometimes. More audio with Dr. Richard Wood and a link to his book, A Shared Future, and more with our other guests if you'd like to dig deeper. Look for all the extras soon at our website, peacetalksradio.com, in our October 2016 episode. That's peacetalksradio.com for more with all of our guests and audio from all of our programs going back to 2002. It's also where you can make a tax-deductible contribution to keep these programs and this work going. peacetalksradio.com. Thanks to researcher Joshua Dofford-Johnson, director Nola Daves-Moses, theme composer Ali Adelman, and businesses like a Spinal Health and Movement Center in Ruben Ramirez, located in Albuquerque's Knob Hill neighborhood. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.